morning Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. It's Wednesday, <sighs> and you are watching AM to DM. Uh, I am laughing because <laughs> yesterday we asked you to share stories of shady things kids have to say, and thus far, we've got over 195 replies, and they are all so funny. Your kids are fucking shady. It has been hilarious. We've just been reading them. <sighs> I've been reading them. them back and forth. Cracking up. One <laughs> troubling thing has emerged a little bit. It seems like Saeed sides with the shady kids. A smart kid is a shady kid. <laughs> a smart kid. It is a shady <laughs> kid. Kids are pretty, I don't know if they're intentional or not, but they're sarcastic. Uh, I think sarcasm is a sign of intelligence. I think they, they just don't even know that there's no structure there for them. No rules have been learned. Right. That's the other thing. Yeah, it's like, okay, maybe it's rude or poorly timed or you're not supposed to say X thing in front of Y person, but like, where are the lies? <laughs> okay, transparency. Saeed believes in radical truth telling. Yes, because they are too young <laughs> to know how important lying is as, as a social norm, okay? <laughs> They don't know you're, we're you're, supposed to be scamming and she just, oh yeah, you look great in those jeans. No, you don't, girl. They don't fit, boo. You're blaming that on the age. I Yet am. again, I will say it, You. it seems like you side with the kids. We're not going to get into this fight about how being polite is not lying. <laughs> Let's just get into some of our favorites. Some somersaults tweeted, when our son was four, one night he was having a hard time sleeping and we were chasing him as he gleefully evil laughed at our lack of control. When all of a sudden he stopped, whirled around and said, yes. This will be the rest of your life. I love it so much. That's not a kid. This is my That's one. a ghost. <laughs> You're raising a ghoul. That's like some creepy shit. I love it so much. I mean, you know, part you know, what are what is parenting but chasing your kids around one way or another? <laughs> I love it so funny. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that will be the rest of... I love it. Oh, well, I saw that, that that tweet came from a poet, I believe. And I'm like, yeah, okay, your kid's a little shady, creepy poet, too. I love it. I stand. I stand. <laughs> Two or three years, going to be memorizing the raven. Oh, listen, saying like, it to you from the rain outside the house. <laughs> Here's a tweet from Mahogany Brown. Um, you tweeted, an annoyance of a boss sees me out with the kid, and I greet him like one greets the person that signs their checks. Oh, hey, how you doing? Oh, so good to see you. My seven-year-old says, uh... She didn't like working with insert colleague name here. Then here she comes with the jugular. Ain't that what you call two-faced? Well, mahogany, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Are we living with integrity or not, friend? You're saying, like, how woke is your baby, Mahogany? How woke is your baby, (laughs) author Mahogany Brown? I'm sorry. No, Mahogany has to put food on the table. That kid needs to learn to zip it. That's not living with integrity. That's messing with the money. I'm sorry that the truth is inconvenient. All right. Lin-Manuel Miranda (laughs) even got involved, and he tweeted, Yesterday morning, Daddy, you don't have to sing everything. You can just talk. (laughs) I ain't saying shit. So funny. It's so funny. What are you singing, Lynn? Like, what is... Oh, come on. You don't think that's that's what it's like <laughs> in his house? He's a musical genius. He's got to be out here. Just open up refrigerators well, and be like, yeah, but we I got would... broccoli, we got... I can't sing, but you I get what I I want to know what the last straw was, though. <laughs> Where the like, kid was I can't like, believe you just sang about taxes. All right, well, I love this so much, obviously. Let's keep it going and take it to the timeline. Tell us more stories about shady things your kids have said to you. I cannot get enough. Let us know using the hashtag. The kids are bitchy and I'd stamp. And you know what? I get in it. some stories too about you being shitty to your kids too. That's like, true. They're some, getting get, it from someone. Let's get some parent pranks in there. Totally. Let's I like let the it. parents fight back a little bit, but keep it going for sure. <laughs> now let's get into the news. Here's a tweet from Joy Childs. This is what, per my last email, looks like in one picture. Oh, man. I added that to my meme folder so fast. (laughs) Save. Save. I love it. Now, that moment was crazy, but the whole hearing yesterday was crazy. It was supposed to be a congressional hearing about social platforms and white nationalism. Pretty important. Significance. And it just seems like it went off the rails from the very beginning. Um, Ryan Broderick tweeted, the comment section, section on the official YouTube stream for the hearing on white nationalism and social media had to be turned off because it was too racist. Oh, the world we live in. Ryan Broderick, senior reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us now. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. All right, (laughs) let me figure out how to read. To start, what was the stated purpose of this hearing? The idea was that uh, they were going to investigate the rise of white nationalism, white supremacy, and hate crimes in America, and specifically look at if there was any connection between those and social media. 
Question mark, question mark, question mark. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Um, to, your, to the point of your tweet, what was going on with the live stream? I saw in addition to racist comments, some people were making money off of their racism? Yeah, which has never happened. It was, uh, it was really impressive. Um, so there were several YouTube channels streaming the hearing yesterday because it was an open public hearing. You could live stream it if you wanted on your own channel. So places like NPR, PBS, the official congressional hearings channel itself, and a Swedish white nationalist YouTube channel called Red Ice TV did a picture-in-picture -picture of the hearing with two hosts who were then doing live commentary about the hearing and they had uh, the chat open, and there's a feature on YouTube called Super Chat that basically lets you pin a comment to the chat room if you donate money. So at one point, someone donated like 100 bucks and just started writing insane white nationalist nonsense at the top of the chat. So all across YouTube, on all of these live streams, they were all inundated by white nationalist trolls, and about an hour into the hearing, YouTube across the board just turned off all the comments because they were they were absolutely grotesque. Okay, so they turned off all the commentaries. Uh, has YouTube responded since? Have they said anything publicly about what happened? Yeah, they say what they say all the time, which yeah. is like, hate has no place on our platform. We use a combination of machine learning and people to flag it immediately and get rid of it. It's like the same thing they said in the hearing. Um, and it's like a whack-a-mole situation. And yesterday, it was just sort of this like perfect moment of they literally couldn't even control the comment sections on the hearing about white nationalism and social media. I mean, it's to totally ironic. Yeah, totally ironic. Um, what stood out to you about the hearing itself? Was, was anything productive accomplished yesterday? Uh, I mean, you got a good thing for your meme folder. I feel Indeed like that was pretty I did. Indeed, I did. Uh, not particularly. I think a lot of this started because they invited Candace Owens. She's a far-right activist. She's the communications director for Talking Points USA. And she was brought on to talk about her own experiences with hate crimes. Uh, but her testimony sort of veered off the rails pretty quickly, and she just started saying that actually the real white nationalists in America were Antifa or anti-fascists. But I think her presence there was a huge flag for all of the trolls on the internet to watch. She's really popular on YouTube. And so when she gets there and she starts spewing, you know, YouTube-based conspiracy theories about racial relations in America, immediately that sets off a frenzy on the internet. So I think the fact that they were trying to have this constructive, you know, analytical conversation about race and the internet, but then they bring in a, a massive troll to sort of disrupt the whole thing almost off the bat, uh, made it pretty hard to make it uh, something constructive that we could all, you know, learn from. That we could all learn from. I, I did want to ask this. Every time, like, tech people are basically uh, sitting in front of Congress, I do wonder a little bit about our representatives' internet literacy, let's call it. Ryan, did you see anything that gives you hope that maybe they're having a better grasp on what's going on? Uh, it does seem like the representatives are getting sick of the same answers. There were a couple moments yesterday where several representatives were kind of flummoxed and, and they would basically go to the representatives who had been sent by Google and Facebook. Fun fact, Twitter was not there, which I, I found interesting. But these, these representatives from Facebook and Twitter, they say the same thing, you know, machine learning, people, moderation, we don't like racial hatred. Uh, and then the representatives would sort of be like, yes, but can you just in very simple terms explain like what you're doing to get rid of it? And obviously they can't. Um, and they use some sort of, you know, it's almost like a Mad Lib at this point. You know, we have algorithms that can use tracking to find things. And I think these representatives, they might not be very uh, technologically astute, but they definitely are getting sort of sick of the same circular answers over and over again at these hearings. Hmm. You know, that is really interesting to me because it's almost like I would have the same questions for our representatives and racism in this country. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, that was very silent. <laughs> He's like, I'm not saying goodbye. Whatever, Ryan. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> here's a troubling tweet from Wall Street Journal reporter Katie Honan. Mayor Bill de Blasio has declared a public health emergency for Williamsburg, Brooklyn, the epicenter of a measles outbreak. Uh, there have been 285 cases of the measles since October of 2018. Residents here will be required to get vaccinated and could be fined $1,000 if they don't. BuzzFeed News science reporter Dan Vergano joins us now. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, guys. So, Dan, what is going on in Williamsburg? 
Well, we got a measles epidemic that's going in the wrong direction. It's going upward and expanding it's, instead of going down and having fewer people infected. So the city is, um, you know, pulling the lever on one of the ways they have to try and tamp down on it and telling people, you know, get vaccinated or we're going to fine you. Wow. Um, this has been going on since October. Uh, 285 people is 285 people too many, in my opinion, getting measles in 2019. So why yep. is the mayor declaring a public emergency now? Did something change? Uh, well, yeah, just uh, these uh, epidemics, it's an epidemic, grow in sort of rounds, and uh, the public health officials uh, sort of are reviewing the numbers all the time, and at some point uh, in the last week or so, they must have gone to the mayor's office and said, look, the, the uh, generations of infections are increasing, like we mentioned, in the wrong way, and it's really time to step in, and we have a couple of uh, tools at our disposal to try and, you know, force people to do this, and Here's one, and this is the one the mayor picked. Uh, there are others. He could be. He could do more severe things. He could do more severe things, but at least he is doing something. Governor Cuomo had some interesting quotes around this story as well. What's going on there? Well, you know, the governor and the, your mayor, they don't always seem to see eye to eye on things. You may notice that. Uh, he said it was legally questionable uh, for the city to do this. Um, which is a really strange statement. The public health laws in this country are about 100 years old, and they're surprisingly draconian. They can do things like keep you, you know, imprisoned in your house. You know, we call it quarantine. Um, and uh, the city, I'm sure, did a legal review of this before it came down. And I, I think the governor and other people, you know, as we saw in the Ebola case, where you had governors putting people in home confinement, uh, would be surprised to learn just how much power public health officials actually do have if they want to put this down. It's all a question of public perception. How much, you know, do they want to push... Uh, a community that's not um, behaving in terms of public health, you know, to try and get them to do the right thing. Um, obviously, you know, last week we talked about a measles outbreak in Rockland County. This one, of course, is now in Wilmer, right. Brooklyn here in New York. Uh, but it's not just happening here. Are we on the verge or are we already there in terms of us having a, basically a national public health emergency as a result of, pe of people not vaccinating their children? At this point, it's still regional in the United States. What you have are these outbreaks in these isolated communities, whether they're, you know, La Liche League moms in Northern California or Russian expatriates in Portland or, you know, Orthodox Jews in New York State. Uh, they still seem to be confined to these insular communities where this, like, nonsense about anti-vaccination garbage can spread. Uh, but we can look across the ocean and, and see the nightmare, which is in Europe, you know, there's like 40,000 cases of the disease, which is crazy. We've had a, you know, vaccine for 50 years for this. This is nuts. And, and that's what we don't want, is, is that sort of wildfire taking place if enough people don't do it. And, you know, this is a disease where you have to be uh, really high vaccination rates, and we don't want that to crumble, and, and all of a sudden we're Ukraine. Wow. All of a sudden we're Ukraine. Well, before you go, Dan, uh, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Scientists have released the first ever image of a black hole. We're seeing a lot of tweets about this. Um, how exciting is this? Is this a huge deal? Uh, it's a long-expected deal in astronomy. My, my email uh, is a black hole of black hole uh, PR announcements for every astronomy place in the world. Um, it's, it's a cool thing. Uh, it's really the shadow of a black hole that we're looking at. And, um, you know, that's neat. I mean, it's Einstein's ideas, like, from, you know, 100 years ago. We only thought these things were possible, really, like, in the last 50 years. And bang, you know, here's a picture of it. It's, it's uh, pretty gobsmacking stuff. Wait, that was really interesting. You said we're looking at the shadow of a black hole. What do you mean? Educate right. us. You're not, you can't really look at a black hole. Uh, obviously, light doesn't emerge from it. So what you're seeing in that image is the fiery ring that's around it, of debris that's heated up. It's faster than the speed of light. And so it's glowing in all kinds of uh, different wavelengths. And, uh, but it can't pass through the black hole, obviously. It's sucked in there. So what we're looking at, essentially, is the silhouette uh, of the light from that debris disk sort of blowing through uh, and past the uh, uh, event horizon of the black hole. The actual black hole itself is probably, you know, uh, a quarter the size of that shadow that we're looking at. Oh, that's so fascinating. All right, Dan, um, as always, thank you for joining us this <laughs> <laughs> You bet. Good talk, you guys. I like that we got to have a little bit of joy there at the end. Yeah. I also like that he hit us with the, uh, well, actually, uh, I'm sorry. It is the shadow of a black hole. You are not looking. That was, God, I love Dan that so much. Great. I learned something. Imagine I, that. Every single time I talk to him. <laughs> All right, we've got another great show for you today. You'll get to see my sit down with Joe Dempsey from Game of Thrones. He plays Gendry. But first, a very special fire tweets with Chance Perdomo from the chilling adventures of Sabrina. Vaccinate your goddamn children. Yeah. Children. <laughs> 
<laughs> Welcome back. This is a satanic edition of Fire Trees because I'm joined now by Chance Perdomo. You know, oh, there you are. Hi, hey. hello. You know him as Ambrose from the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. How are you doing? I'm all good. How good, are you doing good. today? I'm living for the sweater. Thank Loving you the very sneakers. much. Thank good, you. Good. The bone. I'm, li I'm loving your jacket. Thank you. I think this is all saints. You want to swap? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, so I'm going to do the first fire tweets. Hit me. First satanic tweet and show you how it works. Let's do it. Ready? All right, our first tweet comes from Satan. <laughs> Satan tweeted, me arriving at the family reunion with God and Jesus. Oh, okay. A little irritated to be <laughs> there. Um, what do you think a Spellman family reunion would be like? It would be the dopest cookout you'd ever experience if you're into cannibalism and <laughs> hedonistic, orgiastic uh, fun time. That's true. I mean, Hilda's pretty But wait, pretty but good. Not, not family orgies. No, no. Like, like, <laughs> let me, let me. <laughs> I get it. I get it. All right, are you ready for your first tweet? Yeah, let's get it. All right, let's, let's do it. it. Okie dokie. It says, I'm trying to work on being more patient, less angry human. But then I hear a British person pronounce the word schedule and I just... Now, wait a minute. How do you say schedule? Schedule. 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 That is, that is bizarre. Schedule. Okay. Are, are there... <laughs> tomato schedule. Oh, I can work with tomato. Potato schedule. Schedule. Yeah, well, schedule, schedule. Depends really it, where you're from. In, in it's England. like British people were sent here to prank us. Um, is there a word that Americans say in a strange way that confuses you? Aluminum. Aluminum. Totes. Yas. <laughs> all, the, all of the above. Okay. Maybe in California. Uh, and there's a uh, potato. No, no one says potato. No, potato. Al aluminum. How do you say aluminum? Aluminium. It's actually spelled differently. Aluminium. Is that oh. what it is? Oh. You know what gets me about British? Um, maths? Isn't it with an S? Maths? Yeah. Is it like you're studying like, math? math plural? Like studying maths. Huh. All right, see. Maths We're, just, we're bridging. <laughs> we're trying to bridge the gap. Okay, I'm going to do this one. This comes from... This tweet comes from Say? All right, Say. You tweeted... Zero surprise that the literal gates of hell are just across the river from River Riverdale. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because a lot of, Riverdale's a lot of shit goes dark. Down. Yeah, a lot of. Would you? I think of, I was actually thinking about this the other day. If you were like a, in real life as a citizen, you know, trying not to die. Yeah. Do you think you would be safer in Greendale or Riverdale? I think you stay clear of both. Just like <laughs> hop on a raft into the river and just go down south as long as you can until you hit the beach. <laughs> Get it's the Cali safe. and chill. Yeah, River, I feel like there are all these serial killers constantly. Yeah, there are serial gangs. killers on one side, gangs on that side, and then you cross the river and you have witches and cannibalism. Yeah. It's, it's not it's, good. It's a normal Sunday. It's, a, <laughs> it's very dangerous. I read recently that you um, actually auditioned to be Jughead? That's right, yes. Tell me everything. Well, spill the tea. Uh, so, <laughs> yes, um, you are yeah. allowed. Uh, so I, I it was the first thing I auditioned for, really, one of the first things. Oh, really? Did a self-tape, okay. sent it off, and... Uh, I didn't hear anything for like a couple of weeks and I heard back, did mm -hmm. tape after tape after tape. Okay. And I found out I was getting closer and closer. And then, uh, and then nothing. And I was like, oh, okay, well, it didn't go my way, right? Okay. But then I did my uh, Sabrina audition, my screen test. Okay. My brother was like, brother, do you know how close you were? Like, it was literally between you and two other guys. And I was like... <laughs> That's a really good impression. <laughs> That's really good. Uh, and I was just like, yo, my, my goodness. He says, he remembered me. And he wrote the part of Ambrose specifically with me in mind. Oh, my God. So like, Oh, my I, God. That's why you're so good at being Ambrose. Thank you very much. Oh, my God. God bless. It's custom made. Bespoke casting. I love it. I love thank it. You. Um, something I want... I don't want to spoil anything, but did you enjoy all the action Ambrose got this season? Yo, 100%. Yeah, um, the, the writers and Roberto, like, they're, they're quite good with, like, collaboration. Like, you pop out in ideas and they'll be mm -hmm. like, what's wrong with it? So I was like, can we have Ambrose get messed up and, mm -hmm. to some degree and yeah. go to physical action? And they yes. were like, hmm. Yeah, they were like, noted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I came back and I was like, like sticky blood yeah. everywhere. Like, They're like covered in blood for most That stuff is like cornstarch, like mm -hmm. sticky cornstarch. And you get it in places you don't want sticky cornstarch. <laughs> oh, I hadn't thought about Showering that. Showering for like weeks, like everywhere. Okay. But like, no, it's, it was fun, very fun. I love it. I, I love do it. my own stunts. I'm into it. Okay, well, we have one more tweet. Let's hit it. Um, and this one is from Aquafina. We love her. You ready? We'll hit it together. Aquafina says, a man came up to me at CVS and told me I'm his favorite comedian, how I inspired him to follow his dreams. I was very flattered by his words, even felt a little emotional. He then asked me if I was actually pregnant during Baby Cobra because this bitch really thought I was Ali Wong. Wow. Wow. Uh, have <laughs> you ever been mistaken for someone else? Dwayne Johnson, all the time. <laughs> a bit of, a bit, mood. A bit, a bit of Denzel, a bit of Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> 
I was actually, I was at a book reading once um, and I was standing on the other side of the room and watched as a white woman went up to another black gay poet and was like, I love your book so much, Saeed. And I was like, just, we were like making eye contact with each other. It was incredible. Samuel L. Jackson, so good to see you. No, Saeed, uh, we're not all the same. I mean, it's close, but. I love it. I Wait, love no, it. it's not close. It's not that close, not that close. Um, something else I wanted to ask you about with the show is you get to work with Tati Gabrielle a lot. Yes. I love Prudence. That's Amen. very exciting. Amen. What is something we might not know about her? Like, is she as like fierce and intense in real life? If you get on the bad side, Ooh. but no, she's super bubbly, super sweet, super yeah. lovely. Uh, so she's, so she's a, it's a testament to her acting because mm. like her and Prudence are very different people and mm. she brings that ferocity. Like it, she'll be like there being sweet and bubbly and suddenly an action and she'll go into it. And you're like, I wasn't ready. Sure. Right. Anyway. I love it. I love it. Um, if you could pick a new love interest mm -hmm. for yourself, I'm trying to be very careful with the wording here. Um, who would you pick amongst the characters on, on the show? Salem. Wait, no, that's... that's Wait a minute. That, that's Goblin Sir? Bestiality. So, so. <laughs> We're not having you date a cat. No, 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 no. no. Let's say, um, I don't know. Dorian Gray. Thank you. Okay, Dorian I was going to be very upset if you did not say no, Dorian I, Gray. I, I felt the vibe. I was waiting I for I felt it. the judgment coming. I was a little mad. Yeah, I, I, I've been told that before. It's weird. Um, no, I was waiting for you and Dorian Gray to make out. They, 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 they kind of have that kind of intensity to them, don't they? They definitely like Ambrose do. And Dorian. Okay. It'll be interesting. Well, Roberto, we're like waiting for it. Make it happen. My lips are sealed. Like, you, <laughs> you're the boss man. <laughs> um, and one last question. Something I love about the show, Ambrose is pansexual. Of course, Theo is trans. And the way the writing um, about people's sexuality and identity is so nuanced mm -hmm. and contemporary. Yeah. Um, what's it feel like getting to tell that story in that way? No, it's, it's personally and artistically gratifying because mm -hmm. like you're not... You're not playing to, uh, these characters like a buzzword or a quota. Mm -hmm. Here's our LGBTQIA quota. Here's our, our black and ethnic right. quota. No, they're like, paint them as multifaceted individuals, right? As authentically as they would, right? Yeah. So that's, it's, it's dope to be able to play whatever small part in helping push these new authentic narratives. So I love it. It's dope. I love it. 100%. Um, one more request. Uh, Ambrose needs his own pajama line. Okay? Like pajamas, robes. You see the Make vision. it happen. Make it. it happen. I'm just going to put that out there. All right. Thank you so much for coming to Hangout Chance. Oh nice my God, I'm you. stealing the sweater later. Uh, part two of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina <laughs> is streaming now on Netflix. Up next is a different kind of hell. We're going to talk about DC politics. So that's great. Love it. <laughs> Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. All right, Paul, here's a tweet from Southpaw. Batman prevails. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, America. Um, Paul, what was going on with that Trump video? I, I tried to avoid watching it, but people kept retweeting it into my timeline. It's all about getting a DMCA takedown notice to own the libs. What can I say? <laughs> it's uh, They've got people in the White House who are going through pro-Donald Trump uh, Reddit pages in particular, but the pro-Donald Trump internet taking <laughs> these videos, throwing them up on Trump's Twitter feed, and uh, just clearly doing it to get a reaction out of people. I guess they should have gone with a uh, video with the Requiem for a Dream soundtrack instead, because this one didn't last long. It didn't last long, and that literally means that Twitter and Warner basically had to reach out and tell them to take it down? Yeah, yeah, that's how this goes, yeah. That's all right. That's wild to me. Here's a tweet from you, Paul. Here's a weird one. Republicans are warning drug companies they may not want to cooperate with a House investigation into prescription drug prices because Democrats are just trying to tank company stocks. Paul, let's start the beginning with this. What is the intention of this investigation? So drug prices are higher in America than they are anywhere else in the world. And they're, they, significant, they contribute a significant amount of the cost to the American healthcare system. And the House Oversight Committee was attempting to study why drug prices are so high. The manufacturers say that all of these prices are reasonable and that they have to invest in R&D. And so what committee chairman Elijah Cummings, who's a Democrat, was essentially saying to them was, okay, well, can you show us your data? Can you give us the information that you guys use on how you set your drug prices so we can study it to see if it's reasonable? Here's what I don't understand. Like, uh, you know, the Republican Party is trying to get rid of Obamacare and they keep promising, like, we'll come up with a better alternative. What do Republicans gain from publicly coming across as being on the side of pharmaceutical prices? Like, it, it doesn't, that doesn't connect for me. 
this one makes this story so weird. I don't really understand why they are picking this fight. I mean, clearly they have some issue with Cummings and this investigation, but why they then went out to basically warn drug companies, hey, you might want to not uh, cooperate here and not hand over any information because Elijah Cummings might leak out your, your uh, confidential data. I, I have no idea. It's, it's, it's very, very strange. It, it's, it's not something that makes them look good. It's something that obviously poisons that relationship, which is weird because Mark Meadows, one of the people who wrote the letter, who is a, a Republican, and Elijah Cummings actually have a very friendly relationship. The whole thing is utterly, utterly bizarre. I reached out to Jim Jordan, the other co-author of this letter, uh, to his office trying to ask them why they were doing this. And um, they essentially said, look, we are not saying that drug companies should not cooperate with a responsible investigation. We're just saying this is not a responsible investigation. So I don't know. I don't get it either. I don't get it either. I am a little troubled. Like, let's, it's, it's weird. All right. You've stated that. Is it illegal? Maybe like this smacks me. I'm not I'm not like a Wall Street guy, but it seems a little bit like insider trading. <laughs> well, well I, I wouldn't go quite that far. So, so Cummings is not subpoenaing this information. He is so far just requesting it. And so Republicans, you know, it's a free country. They can, they can write in and try to sabotage the investigation and say, we urge you not to do this. Uh, it's just politically, as you say, just very weird. I don't know why you would want to take the side of a drug companies in an investigation into drug prices, which I think most people would agree are way too high. Okay, one more question. And listen, the last few years have just, like, forced me to ask questions about things I thought we could take for granted. Is it uh, allowed for, like, House members to tell possible witnesses or subjects or whatever to not cooperate with House inquiries? Like, is that kosher? Yeah, I mean, there's no rule against it. Uh, and in fact, this type of thing does happen all the time in another way. I mean, the two sides are constantly butting heads about which witnesses to call, what things should be studied. That type of back and forth is, is extremely normal. What makes this so odd is that, yeah, you d- usually don't see undermining in the same way that you're seeing in this case. And... I, I don't recall seeing anything uh, like this before. And again, it, 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 this shouldn't be controversial, right? I mean, America pays so much more than any other country in drug prices. I actually know another reporter who it will talk my ear off about his plans to invade Canada because it manifests destiny north because he says the lower drug prices that we can get from invading the Canadian manufacturing industry would pay for the invasion. So, I mean, that's, that's where we're at in the country. I don't know why we can't all agree that maybe we should be able to ask drug companies how they set their prices. I, yeah, I don't know, Paul. I might be on board with this invade Canada. I think thing. we can take them. I yeah, like right. the idea that free healthcare is a national resource that y'all have that we could come up there and take. That seems very American to me. I could be Paul in a fight. You know, you guys could just institute stuff yourself. You don't really need to invade everything. You could just actually pass some responsible laws here. To give that a try instead of always going to invade. Agree to disagree. Whatever. Paul, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I'll see you on the battle lines eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Thought he was going to say Viva La Canada or something. (laughs) Anyways, up next, you get to see me my sit-down with Joe Dempsey, who plays Gendry on Game of Thrones. I started rewatching season six. He's been rowing a lot. Stay tuned. (laughs) Right. This is We Know Nothing, a series we created to talk about all the things we don't know yet about Game of Thrones, which is a lot. Today, we're going straight to the source with actor Joe Dempsey, who plays Gendry. Good morning, man. Morning, Isaac. How are you? Fragile. (laughs) Getting there. (laughs) Getting there. Yeah, yeah, Getting there. A lot of us, a lot of mornings like that. Um, Speaking of getting there, Gendry makes it to the final season. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised he made it that far? I mean, well, yeah. I mean, I think, I think when you're lost at sea for three years, you're amazed <laughs> to make it back anywhere. Um, and, and, I, and you know, I think over the years, people have asked quite often, you know, what would you like for your character? What would you like to happen with Gendry? Where, mm-hmm. where do you want his tale to, to take him? And I've always just thought, I just want to be there mm-hmm. at the end. I think most of the actors in the show just want to be part of season eight. Right. You know, I wanted to be around, I wanted to know what was going to happen, I wanted to be around on set, I wanted to see it with my own eyes. Right. 
and, um, and I got to do that. And you got to do that. So, and let's talk about that, though, because you uh-huh. were missing there from about season three, right? Yeah. People even started making memes, where's Gendry, like all this stuff. Where, one, where were you? Two, did you know you'd be asked back? Like at the end of season three, where they like, they put you on that boat, they're like, but don't worry, we'll call you in a bit. Well, that's exactly what I said. And, um, and so that was what I thought. And then as the years go by, you start to wonder, <laughs> <laughs> is this going to happen? Because, you know, David and Dan and Brian Cogman, like it's such a massive undertaking trying to put this show together, trying to read from the source material and decide which narrative threads you're going to use and which ones you aren't. And I mean, it's, 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 it's massive. So I would have completely understood mm-hmm. if after a couple of years waiting, they called me up and said, look, man, we're really sorry. We just don't have time. Or just not called me up. Or just recast me with someone else. Like, there's, like all options are available to them. Um, so, so yeah, I, 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 was, I was prepared for that eventuality. Yeah. And actually, weirdly, I feel like this happens a lot in life. It was when I stopped thinking about it that the phone call came. All of a sudden, you got that, that phone call. All right, so that's real life. What about in the show? Where do you think Gendry was? I mean, he's, I think, I, I imagine whatever the medieval equivalent of a volleyball is, he was doing the castaway thing, you know, <laughs> Wilson, whatever Wilson is. He was, was just, only, <laughs> yeah. He was just on a deserted island, yeah, yeah, yeah. making friends the, with... Yeah, with a coconut or something, <laughs> yeah, but they exist. I love that. But we've seen him, we've seen him in the trailer, obviously, for season eight. I'm sitting mm-hmm. here talking with you. Saw him making weapons. Is he going to play yeah. kind of a big role in the fight against the army of the dead? Well, I think, well, you know, it's this this impending reckoning is um, is the thing that sort of sets up season eight. It's the thing that we're all looking forward to, you know, mm-hmm. I think, as viewers. And and um, and yeah, and if you want to kill White Walkers, you need to be able to forge Dragonglass. And uh, so those weapons might... Want a man for that job. Those weapons might be pretty Dragonglassy, maybe. Could be, could be. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Uh, also, listen, son of Robert Baratheon. Yeah, and hey, I met, so that was the other thing about last night, I met Mark Addy. Wait, really? For the first time. No kidding. Yeah. So you met the person that played your father. Yeah, I was like, where the hell have you been, Pops? <laughs> absent father. And very absent father, like not yeah, a very like good father. never present not, father. How, how, was the, how was he in, in real life? The loveliest man, <laughs> which, I, which I think I kind of knew anyway. I, I know enough people that know him and have worked with him before that have told me that he's just the nicest bloke. You, uh, you knew it was going to go well. But your character has like no real, at least it seemed uh, in, in the past season, like uh, kind, of, kind of ambitions for the throne. Do you no. think that might change this season? I mean, I think you have to wait and see how it pans out. I mean, one of the things that I was looking forward to with season eight, the prospect of season eight, was uh, was learning more about Gendry's parentage or more, just more about where he came from and mm. the, the possible political implications that could have. Mm. Um, and, and that's just, again, me selfishly, like <laughs> on a personal level, I think, and, and as an actor as well, you want... There's so little to go on sometimes with with some of the characters that are slightly on the periphery mm-hmm. of Game of Thrones, and um, and you just you I want info just as much as people at home want info about this guy. Again, like we said, kind of no ambitions for the throne last season, but Arya, it feels like maybe there's some sparks there. Do we learn anything in season eight about their relationship? Do they uh, see each other again? Um, I don't know if I can really say. I know a lot of people want Gendry and Arya to. Uh, to be reunited. Uh-huh. Um, is this is this going to go out after episode one? Well, it will not go up after episode one, sadly. In that case, In- <laughs> have to wait and see. You'll have to wait and see. I love it. Um, do you do you find yourself missing the cast at all? Like you guys have yeah. worked on this show for so long. Do you have a cast member that you were closest with, or? Well, there's 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 a, there's a load of them. Um, I think that's been for me the most um, the, the most amazing thing about the show is the number of friends that I've, I've made. And when I'm speaking for myself, I, <laughs> they might not feel the same way, but <laughs> I consider them friends now. And um, and yeah, I think John Bradley is someone who I've got to know really well over the last mm-hmm. couple of years. Mm-hmm. And he said when we were filming and when people were starting to rap and finish that it was like it was like coming to the end of school. Mm. I thought it was a really good comparison because mm. that's exactly how it felt it was you know just like when you leave school there are 
people who you know you're going to see again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you, you love them, you're going to stay friends with them. You've just got to make the effort now. You can't rely on that six-month period in Belfast every year to, <laughs> to hang out. To sit around in the freezing cold. To sit around. Well, yeah, well, to, I mean, there is that. Maybe we only hung out because there was nothing else to do. <laughs> do you, uh, I mean, again, you guys wrapped filming like almost a year ago. You're seeing each other, yeah. though, now as you guys do promotion and stuff. Is it really nice to see one another it's again? It's great. Yeah. It's great. It's dangerous. It's, it's great. It's dangerous. Yeah. All right, last question. I know you can't tell us anything, but the finale, the way it ends, who ends up on the Iron Throne? Were you surprised? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I think, because um, that's the thing, I've never envied David and Dan the task mm. of trying to bring this thing to a, mm-hmm. a conclusion that is broadly satisfying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also, I think it does have to be kind of surprising. You know, mm-hmm. the Game of Thrones is the kind of show that you can endlessly theorize over. Right. I think that's been a huge part of his success is that you can you can really go into the weeds and you can read into all kinds of things that probably aren't there. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, the, I think it would have been slightly disappointing if, or anticlimactic if it ended in a way that has been suggested quite widely on the internet already. So right. like, it was, a, it was a huge, huge task for Dave and Dan. And I personally love it. You think they stuck the landing? Yeah. All right, that's awesome. Well, before we let you go, we have a game that we want to play real uh-huh. quick, okay? This is a game in which you have no power over who sits on the Iron Throne, kind of like what we are just talking about. So we want to... like real life. Yeah, kind of like real life. But we want to give you that power here. We're going to have uh, a bowl filled with names here. Okay, these are, this is nobody on the show. These are just celebrities. Okay. So you're going to pick a name out here. I feel like I'm doing the FA Cup draw. Exactly. Don't mean anything to America. <laughs> okay, now you can read that name out loud. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, Adele. Adele, okay, so now I w- I've smashed it. I'm not going to top that. Okay, yeah. Adele's the queen. This is perfect, but here's the thing 30 seconds, stump speech, why she should be on the Iron Throne. We've got a little bit of music, and then I want you to hold this up and let her rip. You got that music, guys? Okay, vote Adele for the Iron Throne. You know it makes sense. I don't even know why I have to do this selling of her to you. She's from London. She used to live in West Norwood, which you would never have heard of, but I live there now. There's no better reason. Vote Adele. She's won an Oscar. I'm an actor. I'm not going to win an Oscar. She's got one. (laughs) That's it. Adele. Adele for the Iron Throne 2020. Do you have like a favorite Adele song? Do you have something you put on Ooh, from time to time? Town Glory. Ooh, there and there it is, living where you live now. Yeah. My man, thank you so much for coming in and Thanks, talking man. to us. Obviously, Game of Thrones premieres on Sunday, April 14th on HBO. Everyone will be watching. We will be as well. Stay tuned for more AM to DM. Atlantic writer Adam Harris tweeted this, This was a difficult story for me to write. My latest on Thea Hunter, a promising, brilliant scholar and truly remarkable writer, and what academia is doing to scholars like her. This piece touched me so much. Adam, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Um, Who was Thea Hunter, and why did you decide to write her story? So Thea Hunter, um, Dr. Thea Hunter, she was a scholar of of rights and liberty and slavery. She studied with um, Eric Foner, you know, this acclaimed uh, American historian. And um, she had this really promising trajectory. You know, she she, um, was kind of on the cutting edge of her field and and, and what she was studying in in history. And, um, you know, there were there were kind of throughout her career, there were there were spots where it was blunted by by racism, and then again by uh, this 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 adjunct system that that um, higher ed kind of traps people in. Um, and and I was I was really fascinated by by just how it could be possible that someone with such a promising trajectory um, was kind of trapped in this system. Absolutely, and unfortunately, her story is is very familiar to a lot of people who have adjunct. For people who don't know, for people who are like, I don't know, I just assume, you know, all people who are sitting at the front of a college classroom are tenured professors and living the good life. Um, what are some examples of uh, experiences adjunct professors have? 
Yeah, so so typically the adjunct experience is is you know lack of health insurance or it's low pay or, or it's or it's little control over some of the management decisions in a department. Um, now, of course, over the last couple of years, um, adjuncts have been organizing. Um, you know, in, in the state of Florida, um, there's seven uh, state colleges in the last couple of months that have have filed to join the SEIU. Um, and more than half of adjuncts are kind of organizing to, to get some of these um, some of these rights back. But but a lot of the adjunct experience is is doing the work that um, maybe some others don't want, um, and, and that the that universities can get at a cut rate price. At a cut rate price. Um, you also know that this uh, phenomenon of you know exploiting the labor of adjunct professors seems to disproportionately impact um, scholars of color. Why is that? Yeah. So basically, as as kind of the doors of opportunity and education were open, um, universities shifted more towards um, some of some of these adjunct jobs. You know, in, in 1969, um, it was about 80 percent of faculty jobs were uh, tenure track, and now it's about three quarters are, are adjunct or contingent faculty. Um, so, so with that shift, um, and, and with with a lot of minority scholars kind of studying things um, that are kind of on the cutting edge and, and, and breaking new ground in fields, um, it's difficult to to find those tenure track positions now. Um, you you have seen growth in the amount of minority scholars in tenure track jobs, as I mentioned. It's kind of um, I want to say it was thirty a thirty percent growth um, over the last couple of years. But it, as it as the boom happened. Um, the adjunct, the amount of minorities in adjunct position, underrepresented minorities in adjunct positions, um, grew by two hundred and thirty percent. So it was kind of this disproportionate growth in terms of um, of where they were landing in these positions. Okay, uh, I have an MFA. I, I've been in academia and have a lot of friends are as well. I've heard people compare being an adjunct to slavery, <laughs> or it's like working in a sweatshop. These are, you know, things that are thrown around to describe it. Um, and you note that Thea herself, a scholar who studied uh, slavery and, and, and the rhetoric of freedom as it traveled the Atlantic, would not have liked that. What would you say to people making those kinds of comparisons? Um, slavery was a very unique experience, um, and it's very difficult to compare slavery to anything other than actual slavery. Um, in, in terms of um, kind of the adjunct system, it is, it's, it's more like a caste system. It's being the, the lowest rung with the least opportunity for advancement. Um, as you take on more adjunct jobs, uh, your, your resume becomes, becomes less familiar to hiring committees. Um, you know, if you've, if you've jumped from place to place to place, kind of in search of a tenure track job um, uh, down the road. So I think the, the fact that slavery is kind of a, a, a permanent condition, um, whereas, you know, this, this kind of underclass that, that academia's created um, is, is kind of not directly comparable to, to the, the viciousness of, of actual slavery. Great. Um, that's such an excellent and eloquent point. I'm seeing tweets here from Shawnee Hilton and, and, and others who are just so grateful that you wrote the piece and you were able to join us this morning. Adam, thank you for writing about Thea Hunter's life. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Friends, up next, we are talking about why millennials should not be ashamed of spending money on small luxuries. I don't see a problem with this. <laughs> Here's some tweets from friend of the show, Alana Oaken. The Goods' latest installment in the Best Money I Ever Spent essay series is by Mae Rice, and she writes about spending $20,000 on Starbucks over the past decade. I'm frankly obsessed with this essay, the notion of small luxuries as a way to preclude bigger splurges. How Mae pushes back against the popular notion that if millennials just kicked our latte habit, we could all finally buy houses. Mae joins us now to talk about her piece. Hi, May. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? So you wrote this piece, and it caused a lot of drama in my family group text because my husband goes to Starbucks every day. He's a fierce defender of Starbucks. And there's a lot of people who really think that that's a huge waste of money. So what made you start to look at your daily coffee order over time and realize how much you were spending? Um. I think I've always kind of known that Starbucks is a luxury and I spend a lot of money on it. Um, that's never been mysterious to me. I, I was kind of surprised there were so many coffee calculators that help you figure that out because 
I've just always known it was a ridiculous thing to do, but that I like it. I really like about your piece is I know every time I, you know, on a Friday or a Monday or whenever I need to pick me up and I go to Starbucks and I get a breakfast or whatever, I always feel a little guilty about it because that is the thing that they talk about all the time, right? Like if you guys would just stop going to Starbucks, you would have more money. But you speak out and really defend this habit and say that it's okay to do it if it brings you joy. How did you come to that realization? Well, I mean, I don't know that that's true for everyone. I, I don't know if I recommend it as a, as a lifestyle to all of us. Um, but I think for me, it brings me a lot of joy. And I kind of talk about this in the piece, how I have this, these various delusions that Starbucks helps me um, maintain. And so it, it pays these psychological dividends for me that don't make total rational sense, but they, um, they're meaningful to me. Um, and so I think, I think that's more the realization is I've realized what kind of person I am and why this serves me specifically. So, uh, so much. One of the other interesting things in your piece, you talk about Americans really have an obsession with habits and I feel Mm -hmm. like it's like there's this line of a good habit and a bad habit and good habit people are successful and bad habit people are, are unsuccessful. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Um, yeah. I mean, I mentioned this book in the, in the piece too, but Ling Ma wrote this book severance, which is, which is very beautiful. I, I really recommend that book way more than Starbucks. Um, and she talks a lot about habits in the book and it's, it's set in an apocalyptic kind of context. And it's, it's sort of, um, shows how, how our habits can kind of extend, uh, beyond the place where they're useful. And so people are sort of still doing habitual things as the world crumbles around them. Um, and it felt, it feels like a very apt, uh, a very apt metaphor for, us right now as, as global warming is, is becoming a more intense force in the world. And, um, and I think, so I think that book made me start thinking about habits, but, um, like I said, I mean, these, these, uh, financial, um, personal finance kind of gurus like Suze Orman and, um, a lot of, a lot of people who talk about money and how to save money are also, uh, very interested in, habits because they do add up. So do you think that you convinced anyone? What was the responses that you've gotten to this piece? Because I think this is, I think also spending money every day on Starbucks is something that people like to lord over other people. Like you're so stupid for doing that. And they like to kind of like go off on Twitter about it. Do you think you've made any converts? Do you think you've made anyone feel better about having a daily habit like that? You're shaking your head. I think I, I think maybe I made some people feel better who already go to Starbucks a lot and they're like, why do I do this? I feel possessed. Um, but I, but I don't think anyone who doesn't buy Starbucks is like, wow, that really is like making me want to change my ways. Um, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think people who make coffee at home and enjoy it should definitely keep it up because they're saving a ton of money. Um, but I, I think the main people that spoke to is people who who already do it, who felt validated, and people who don't already do it, who also felt validated. It seems like everyone felt validated pretty much. That's great. You're making people feel validated. As my husband says, <laughs> it just doesn't taste the same when I make it at home. And you know what? It brings him joy. Whatever. May, brings you joy. We need a little bit of joy today in the world. May, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's take it to the timeline because I feel like this is a really big talker. What is one thing that you spend money on that you feel like personal finance gurus or people in your life shame you for spending money on that really gives you sanity or peace? Or what is one habit that you're trying to break? I just want to hear all about your financial habits. Let us know using the hashtag AM2DM. And up next, we're reading more of your tweets. Welcome back. Uh, We asked you for more stories about your shady children. And I want to say this, shady vaccinated children. I'm just assuming. I'm praying that you were vaccinated. I can't believe it's come to this. I just don't 
People should not be getting measles in 2019. And further, regardless of your politics or everything, the idea of inflicting pain on your child unnecessarily really upsets me. It breaks my heart. That is some. That is a hurt that your children have no need to experience. There are so many hurts awaiting them. You can spare them this. The youngest and the innocent are the ones that suffer from ignorance. Like I that, it. it is the ignorance of the parents inflicting yeah. pain on the child. I think it's child negligence. Anyway, huh? let's talk about the shady kids. <laughs> Jordan, you had this to say. In second grade, my sister's class was talking about how lying is bad. <laughs> she got really upset and told her teacher, but mom lies all the time. She says her hair is brown, but it's really gray. My mom died her. Ooh, Ooh that's real good. Accountability. <laughs> I've told you this story before, but it does remind my, my niece once when I was over at her house. She was like, let's play oh, right. I'm the mom and you're the kid. Okay. And I said, okay, that sounds like a fun game. And, uh, and she's like, now try and talk to me. And I was like, oh, okay. And she goes. And I'm telling you, my sister-in-law saw her do that. And I watched her like, oh, yeah. God, I've got to be a better parent. Yeah, I like, she immediately, sure. She's like, I'm not using the phone in front of the kid ever again. Straight to Just, therapy. <laughs> All right, Michelle tweeted about my interview with Gendry from Game of Thrones. <sighs> Joe Dempsey grew up cute. I remember him from Skins. You know, Skins is one of those shows that has been on my to-watch list. Like, I have not true. gotten to it. but I, I feel like there are two camps. Usually it's like Skins or Misfits, but yeah. And, and you know that, what I mean? And I watch a lot uh -huh, of Misfits. Uh -huh. But it also, there are these shows where all these British actors that we now so desperately yeah. love, that's like where they got that's a their good point. start. Like, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the actor who played Catelyn Stark played one of the characters on Misfits' mom. I, 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 I think would I not be that. surprised. Yeah. I just realized that I said desperately love, which does explain how I feel about Joe Dempsey. Uh, the man had some gorgeous blue eyes. <laughs> I, I teased Isaac about this during the in, when we were watching it, but I was like, you were like date laughing. I had some first date giggles. You were like, <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was tired too, but he was pretty. I was just like, Joe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I liked his cheeks. He did. He felt like he like let a few things maybe almost Oh, yeah. Slide, if you were really obsessed with Game of Thrones and trying to figure out the last season, there there are at least two clues I'm in his interview. Rewatch that interview. Yeah. All right. Well, here's a tweet from Pix Maven about the death of an adjunct piece. Oh, God, Adam Harris's piece is so well done. It's so powerful and beautiful. You tweeted, adjuncts are not well treated. The trap is real. This is a valuable story to share. And I work at a uni university which recently unionized adjuncts. It's getting we better. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Pix Maven. Uh, unions make better working conditions for people and allow them to do better work, whether they are at universities or news organizations. Oh, so, yeah. Sorry, I got just oh. this. Oh, shout out to that. Oh, shout out to that. Thank, Thank you. You to our guests, Ryan Broderick, Dan Vergano, <laughs> Paul McLeod, Stephanie McNeil, Mae Rice, Adam Harris, Chance Perdomo, and Joe Dempsey. Oh, we didn't even talk about you. Chance sure was amazing. Did. I'll Chance was to great. talk about it on camera. All right. All right. Try to keep it cute. Okay, we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Vaccinate your children. Unionize your newsrooms. Be shady. And universities. You know, hey, Chance called me. You know, I just, I'm just trying to check all the boxes. <laughs> Get that sweater. Get that sweater. <laughs> oh, I do want the sweater. That's true. <laughs>